Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 22nd, 2020, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Mill. The title of today's podcast is We Didn't Start the Fire, But Can Antacid Monotherapy Stop the Fire? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician in Calgary, Alberta. He's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through various online outlets, including being on faculty with the SGEM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thank you very much for having me, Ken. Chris, you know that I am so disappointed that COVID-19 has put a hold on our Top Gun Maverick party. So I'm hoping that 2021 is going to be better than 2020, because you know what? I feel the need, the need for speed. Ow! Yeah, this is the absolute worst. Like, I'm just so depressed right now because of this whole situation. And it has nothing to do with COVID. It has everything to do with Top Gun Maverick. What we should do is we should have an online Zoom meeting where we all watch the original Top Gun together and we can sing You've Lost That Loving Feeling. I think that would contribute greatly to my wellness. But we're not here to talk about Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick. We're here to do another S-Gem hot <laughs> off the press. So give us a case. All right. A 34-year-old male presents to the emergency department with burning epigastric pain after eating a giant meal of chicken two hours ago. He says he gets this from time to time, but this is the worst it's ever been. He denies chest pain, shortness of breath, fever, vomiting, and his vital signs are within normal limits. His abdominal exam reveals some mild epigastric and left upper quadrant tenderness with no peritonitis. Patients presenting to the emergency department with epigastric pain are typically treated with antacids, either alone or in combination with other medications. Such medications include viscous lidocaine, an antihistamine, a proton pump inhibitor, or an anticholinergic. In Canada, we often use antacid plus viscous lidocaine, and it's referred to as a pink lady because the viscous lidocaine is pink in color, and when added to the antacid, it gives this pink cocktail-like appearance. Now, in the U.S., I've heard that they refer to this combination as the GI cocktail. There are mixed results from studies with varying methodological quality looking at acute dyspepsia management in the emergency department. One single-blind study comparing 30 milliliters of antacid with or without 15 milliliters of viscous lidocaine found the addition of lidocaine significantly increased pain relief, decreasing patient pain score by 40 millimeters on a visual analog scale compared to 9 millimeters with antacid monotherapy. Another single-blind randomized controlled trial comparing antacid plus either benzocaine solution or viscous lidocaine found no statistical difference between the two interventions. However, there was no antacid monotherapy group in that study. Now, Chris, there was a larger double-blinded randomized controlled trial of 113 patients comparing 30 mils of an antacid monotherapy, antacid with 10 mils of an anticholinergic, an antacid with anticholinergic and 10 mils of 2% viscous lidocaine. This study found all three treatments had clinical efficacy and there was no statistical difference in pain relief between the three treatment groups. The conclusion from this paper was to recommend antacid monotherapy. So what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer today? Is antacid monotherapy more effective in relieving epigastric pain than in combination with lidocaine. 
And what's the reference? Warren et al. Antacid monotherapy is more effective in relieving epigastric pain than in combination with lidocaine. A randomized double-blind clinical trial. Academic Emergency Medicine, September. That's this month. All right, let's go through that. Pico, what was the population? Adult patients with epigastric pain or dyspepsia presenting to the emergency department. And they excluded who? Patients unable to consent or under 18 years of age. And what was the intervention? So there were three arms to the study. First arm was the viscous arm, which received 10 milliliters of oral lidocaine, 2% viscous gel, plus 10 milliliters of antacid, the traditional antacid lidocaine mixture. What did they compare this first arm to? So they compared the first arm to two other groups. The second group received 10 milliliters of lidocaine 2% solution, plus 10 milliliters of antacid. And the third group received 20 mils of antacid alone. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? The change in pain scores on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale at 30 minutes after treatment. And how about their secondary outcomes? Medication palatability, including taste, bitterness, texture, and overall acceptability using a visual analog scale. Change in pain score 60 minutes post-administration and adverse events. So this is an SGEM hop episode, which means we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Jamie Warren. She is a first-year doctor at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and an aspiring emergency and retrieval physician. She hopes to one day work in a rural and extreme environments. Welcome to the SGEM, Jamie. Thank you very much for having me. I love the fact that you want to work rural. I've spent 23 years, i.e. my whole career, working rural in the emergency department. That is fantastic to hear. Yeah, I just, I think rural environments are so interesting and come with so many different scenarios that you don't see in metro uh, hospitals. It does, uh, it does add additional challenges to the practice of medicine because a lot of the literature that we'll read wasn't generated in rural communities. And there's things that are unique to rural situations. Now, I'm in Canada, you're in Australia. So in Canada, I sometimes actually have to open the window and look outside and go, hmm, should I really send this person down the road in the middle of a snowstorm? What is the Bayesian approach to that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to think about the fact that the next hospital is four hours down the road and the risk of hitting a kangaroo uh, in the ambulance is quite high. And you don't want to take those chances. No, you don't. <laughs> All right, Jamie, could you read your conclusions to your paper? Yes. So a 20 mil dose of antacid alone is no different in analgesic efficacy than a 20 mil mixture of antacid and lidocaine, either viscous or solution. Antacid monotherapy was more palatable and acceptable to patients. So a change in practice is therefore recommended to cease adding lidocaine to antacid for management of dyspepsia and epigastric pain in the emergency department. Okay, Chris, let's you and I go through the 11 questions that are quality checks for randomized clinical trials. You ready to go? Let's do it. All right. First question. Are these ED patients? They are. Did they adequately randomize them? They did. Did they conceal the randomization? Yes, they did. Did they do an intention to treat analysis? Yes. Did they recruit the participants consecutively? No, patients were not recruited overnight. 
Were the participants similar with regards to prognostic factors? They were. Were all participants unaware of group allocation? No. The antacid monotherapy versus combinations with lidocaine may have had different colors or viscosities, and thus the nurses were aware of what medication patients were receiving. Physicians, patients, and researchers were unaware of group allocation. Were all the groups treated equally except for the intervention? Yes, they were. Did they have complete follow-up? They did. Did they consider all patient important outcomes? Yes. And the 11th question, the final question, do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? It was both large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant. Excellent. All right, let's run through those key results. This trial enrolled 94 patients, of which 89 could be analyzed. The mean age was in the early 40s, about two-thirds were female, and 80% of patients were discharged with a diagnosis of gastrointestinal condition. But what was the key result? All three treatments, viscous, solution, or antacid monotherapy, worked, and there was no statistical difference between groups. All right, let's go through those outcomes. What was the primary outcome? Drill down into that for me. The lidocaine solution with antacid and antacid monotherapy provided clinically important, i.e. greater than 13 millimeter movement on the visual analog scale, analgesia at 30 minutes, with 17 and 20 millimeter reductions respectively. Viscous lidocaine with antacid did not. However, this still did not result in a statistically significant difference between treatments. How about those secondary outcomes you mentioned? Yeah, it's all about the taste, the Pepsi Coke challenge. So at 60 minutes, all treatment groups, viscous solution and antacid monotherapy experienced additional pain relief. The change in median pain scores was clinically significant for all three arms. And we need to talk about adverse events. The most frequent adverse effect was oral numbness. The lidocaine viscous was about 20%. And the lidocaine solution had oral numbness of 26%. Two patients in the viscous arm reported dizziness and tiredness, and four patients in the solution arm reported cough, nausea, and dizziness. One patient in the antacid arm reported a dry mouth. Participants found antacid monotherapy to be the most palatable solution. And since we've got an Aussie guest, I would say it was probably the Penfolds Grange out of all of these with statistically significant differences in taste, bitterness, and overall acceptability. All right, Chris, let's talk nerdy with Jamie here. We have 10 nerdy questions to go through to help better understand her study. Now, Jamie, Chris and I are going to alternate, and we need you to respond to each one of our nerdy questions. And I think Chris has the first question. But Jamie, are you ready for all this nerdiness? I sure am. Okay, Chris. All right, the first question is about the inclusion criteria. So patients were enrolled prospectively based on the clinician providing an antacid therapy. This resulted in a large group of patients having non-GI causes of pain. Why not enroll patients for whom the final diagnosis was dyspepsia or epigastric pain after their emergency department workup? So we wanted to make sure that we best reflected clinical practice. And therefore, we wanted to include every patient that was prescribed an antacid. So... Uh, people get analgesia very, very early on in the treatment process. At least that's what happens in Australian emergency departments. Hopefully that's the case in Canada and America. And therefore, uh, patients got their antacid, we enrolled them. And as a result, because this happened early on, 
um, we did include some patients that didn't have a GI cause of the pain because they got their diagnosis later. I think that's very pragmatic when you take that approach because, you know, retrospectively, you could say it's more like a per protocol analysis because you only included patients with GI diagnoses such as dyspepsia or epigastric pain. Whereas if you do it as an intention to treat sort of approach, where it's like you cast the net wide, they came in, they had some complaint in that area that prompted the clinician to um, provide this therapy. So I think it's a more pragmatic approach to it as well. I agree. All right. Number two is about selection bias. Why were patients that presented overnight excluded from the enrollment? Was it a lack of funding? So basically, it was research students who were working for free, including myself, who was collecting all the data. Um, and I was already doing days 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. data collecting, so all but sleeping in the emergency department. <laughs> so uh, we just didn't have the reach to be able to uh, collect patients overnight. So what you're saying is you cannot work 24 hours a day. Is that correct? Uh, probably not, at least not for three months straight. <laughs> All right, a follow-up question then. What about these patients that present at night? Do you think that they could be potentially different? Maybe they have more severe presentations. Maybe they've got more alcohol-related gastritis. Maybe they present after eating a large meal in the evening time, and then they lie down on a couch, and then they, oh, get that GERD symptoms. Do you think that the patient population in the hours that you were not collecting could be different than the hours that you were collecting? I mean, there could definitely be a small difference, uh, particularly on a Friday and Saturday night after uh, people have gotten on their drinks and then going out for their 3 a.m. kebabs. Um, but I don't think the difference would be big enough to have a huge effect on the results. All right, Jamie, the third question is about the groups. So in table one, it appears that more patients in the lidocaine arms had prior proton pump inhibitor use and more prior upper GI-related diagnoses, for example, peptic ulcer disease, gastritis, or GERD. It also appears the viscous group received more rescue analgesics in the emergency department. Can you confirm these are all non-statistically significant differences between groups as the p-values aren't documented? I can confirm that. Um, the p-values were all between 0.2 and 0.9, so the difference wasn't significant. Yeah, we don't want to talk about p-values too much, but it is nice to know that the groups were balanced after randomization because some of those things could have impacted the outcomes. The fourth point we wanted to talk about was blinding of the staff. The solutions were not made to look identical, and this could have unblinded the trial, at least to the nursing staff. Do you think that could have impacted the results? And did you consider asking the nurses which group they felt the participants was randomized to? So the nurses were definitely unblinded. I mean, they were making the pink lady. They could clearly see that it was pink. So they knew what they were giving the patient. Um, but it was an either or sort of problem in that we wanted to test palatability, taste, bitterness, all that sort of thing. And if we were to put things in place to make the solutions all look the same, then we wouldn't be able to test that outcome. So we chose to stick with testing the palatability, knowing that the nurses were unblinded. But we didn't think this would have an effect on the results as all the data collectors and the patients were completely blinded. Yeah, so it, again, it's a trade-off in research and in the methodology. And you have to say, well, if I do it this way, yes, I could be blinding the 
clinicians who are providing it, the nurses, right, who are providing it. But what's the trade-off on then not capturing the data on the taste and texture data? Yeah, absolutely. And we thought it would be interesting to see how people liked the taste. So decided to keep the nurses unblinded. All right, Jamie, following up on the blinding of the staff, let's talk a bit about the placebo effect and blinding of the patients. So the patients may have been unblinded and susceptible to a placebo effect because lidocaine has a bitter taste and can cause oral numbness. It's been demonstrated that bitter tasting treatments can increase the placebo effect. And do you think this, is, this had any effect on your study? You know, some patients may have been unblinded, particularly if they'd had the treatment before and they saw that they were getting a pink solution again or not, maybe they would have known. Or if they had an insight into what lidocaine does and they got a numb mouth, they might have known they took the lidocaine solution. But I don't think the placebo effect would have had a a great effect on our results. Um, All three treatment arms uh, got a decrease in their pain and all fairly even in the decrease. But also, if the lidocaine solutions were producing a placebo effect, it actually means that this would have artificially increased the amount of analgesic efficacy that they reported, which would actually further contribute to my conclusion that an antacid alone is a recommendation, and it would actually support it being a better analgesic. Very well answered. There is some other data with regards to the bitter tasting treatments and how the placebo effect can be impacted by these things. And I'll put extra links in the show notes for people to follow up on that. Jamie, we're halfway through the nerdy questions. We're going to get into number six here, and this is about diagnosis. Do you think that the effectiveness of antacid monotherapy is the same whether the diagnosis is dyspepsia, whether it's GERD, whether it's gastritis, whether it's peptic ulcer disease, do you really think that has an impact? I mean, look, I would love to be able to answer that question, but in reality, based on this study, we just don't have the data to do that. So if I was to answer your question, I'd purely be guessing. And and it's fine to say, you know, we don't know because we didn't have large enough groups within Mm. these subgroups to be able to say whether antacid monotherapy would be equally effective for different types of conditions. So you've got future research in front of you. Absolutely right. Look at Ken just assigning work on this podcast. (laughs) All right, let's talk about the primary outcome. So your primary outcome was the change in the 100 millimeter visual analog scale at 30 minutes. Well, that is an important patient-oriented outcome, a poo. What about length of relief? Your secondary outcome was 60 minutes. Do you think there could be benefit to a longer time frame or a return to the emergency department within 24 hours? Uh, So I think this would be more relevant if we're looking at a curative treatment, Um, whereas the aim here was acute analgesia. So I think if we were going to look at a longer time frame, we'd be better off looking at agents such as PBIs or something similar. It was logistically easier to set a time frame of 30 and 60 minutes because it just meant as researchers, we could go back at that time and look at the pain at that time rather than recording how long it took to achieve an analgesic effect or the length of relief. So because our study was more about the acute pain rather than how long the pain relief lasted or any sort of curative treatment, um, I think that it was reasonable to keep the 30 and 60 minute timeframes. 
Well, that's a nice segue into number eight because that's about other comparators. Can you comment on how use of these medications would compare to H2 receptor antagonists or a proton pump inhibitor in terms of efficacy for treating dyspepsia and epigastric pain in the emergency department? So these agents definitely have a role in terms of longer acting pain relief and in decreasing the effects of acid on the mucosa. And they are likely to be synergistic with antacids, but we didn't test for this in the study, so I cannot comment directly. All right, let's talk about where this study was done. So it was a single center study conducted in Melbourne. Patient expectations can be different depending on the country. What are your thoughts to the external validity to other countries, for example, the UK, USA, Canada, et cetera, and do you think you would find similar results? Look, I really can't see a reason why the results wouldn't be similar. I mean, I've never been to America or Canada, so I'm not sure how different it is over there to, it is down, to how it is down under, but I absolutely don't see a reason why the results would be overly different. Um, larger externally validated studies are always welcome and would definitely be beneficial. But yeah, I imagine the results will be fairly similar in other countries. Why don't you take this as an open invitation to come and visit Canada, maybe come to a Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians conference. We would love to have you over here in Canada and show you around. And I would love to come. I love the snow, so why not? All right, this leads to the 10th and final question, and this is an easy one. This is, is there anything else that you'd like to comment on about your paper that we haven't asked or that you think is really important to the SGEM audience? Um, so we have presented this in regional and national meetings in Australasia, and clinicians over here do appear to like it, as they have often considered the benefit of adding the gel to the antacid. And I really think that Patients didn't like the taste of the Pink Lady cocktail, and it is a more expensive option, so why keep it? All right, well, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We generally agree with the author's conclusions, but would say that a change in practice should be considered rather than recommended. And how about an SGEM bottom line? Consider using antacid monotherapy in place of lidocaine antacid combination therapy for patients with dyspepsia. And how about resolving the case you presented? You give your patient 20 milliliters of antacid monotherapy and his epigastric pain improves. You suggest he try antacids in the future if he has recurrent postprandial pain and follow up with his family physician. And how are you going to take this study and apply it clinically, Chris? I'm going to give antacid monotherapy for dyspepsia when I'm working. And I've actually, after reading your paper, Jamie, I've started doing this because I classically gave the pink lady, I gave the antacid with xylocaine viscous, and this has changed my practice, and I'm introducing this, and I'm starting to give monotherapy of antacid alone. Yeah, I did this yesterday, and since reading this paper, I've done this, I've changed my practice as well. <laughs> so Chris, what did you tell the patient when you, uh, when you did this? I said, we've given you some medication to treat your stomach pain. This is usually related to eating and sometimes to reflux or in rare cases, an ulcer. If you're having recurrent pain, you can use over-the-counter antacid medications. And I'll give them some examples of some names, but they're trade names, so I'll just leave that out. If it's persistent and frequent pain, you may need to see your family doctor to start a daily medication and perhaps have further investigation. So 
So it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and we had many people enter it, but not one person, as of today's date of recording, got the correct answer. Chris, what's the question this week? A patient on antacids for dyspepsia presents with hypercalcemia, renal insufficiency, and a metabolic alkalosis. What's the diagnosis? Oh, a tough one. So if you know the answer to this Keener contest question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on antacid therapy? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Jamie and her team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And you can get CME credits for this if you are a subscriber to Academic Emergency Medicine. Just go over to the AEM homepage and go to the site, type in September in the search engine, and you will get five questions to complete to get your CME credits. If you're having any difficulty, you can email Corey Heinz. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on the SGM and talking about your hot off the press publication. And thank you very much for having me. And Chris, next time we see each other, it's going to be a Zoom meeting and we're going to be watching Top Gun together. Please, I can only pray for that day. <laughs> and to finish the show, Jamie, we need you to give the SJAM tagline in your best Australian accent. So remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. <laughs>